Hey, welcome to the Afikra Podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. Today we have poet extraordinaire, unbelievable person, Naomi Shihab Nye. Naomi is an inspiration to almost every single poet we've had on the series, and I think you'll understand why once we get started. This has got to be one of my favorite episodes ever. Go to the YouTube page if you want to watch the interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, everyone. My name is Mikey Mhenna. I'm excited to have you here. Our special guest's name is Naomi Shihab Nye. She's a poet, songwriter, and author, novelist. She is the author of numerous books of poems, including Castaway, Poems for Our Time, The Tiny Journalist, Voices in the Air, Poems for Listeners, Transfer, You and Yours, which received the Isabella Gardner Poetry Award, and 19 Varieties of Gazelle, Poems of the Middle East, a collection of new and select poems about the Middle East. She is also the author of several books of poetry and fiction for children, including Habibi, for which she received the Jane Addams Children's Book Award in 1998. Naomi's honors include uh, awards from the International Poetry Forum and the Texas Institute of Letters, the Charity Randall Prize, the National Book Critics Circle Lifetime Achievement Award, and four Pushcart Prizes. She uh, has been a Lannan Fellow, a Guggenheim Fellow, and a Witter uh, Biner Fellow. In 1998, she received the Academy of Americans, uh, American Poets Lavin Award, judged by W.S. Mervyn. Naomi served as a chancellor of the American, uh, the Academy of American Poets from 2010 to 2015, and is the Poetry Foundation's Young People's Poet Laureate from 2019 to 2022. Naomi, welcome to Africa Conversations. Thank you so much, Mikey. I'm thrilled to be here with you all. And, and thanks to everybody checking in from so many <laughs> wonderful places. That feels good. Yeah, it is nice. You have, you have fans all over the world. Um, you know, I guess a good place to start, I like to start with um, questions about your childhood and stuff like that. But maybe a good place to start is how does it feel um, having all these sort of receiving these types of awards as a poet and having them sort of reread back to you? It must feel kind of weird, but um, kind of nice. How does it feel? Well, it does feel um, very touching and, and very encouraging. But of course, when you're a poet or any kind of writer, you don't do anything that you do with um, an award as your intention. It's not something that's ever in your own mind, I don't think. So it's just like an unexpected gift. And you feel so touched that someone um, liked your work at any given moment and was so encouraging to you. Yeah. Do you, do you write with the readers in mind? Do you think about them being read by people? Is there a sort of an image of in your mind's eye as you're writing? Well, sometimes I do, but not always, because I sometimes I just am writing in a notebook, just writing down um, every day little things, and I'm not really thinking of readers then, but when I start typing or putting something together, um, looking at it from a slightly farther distance, then I think about readers and I really care about readers. I love readers and being a reader all my life, I know what it feels like to, to read text and feel the text kind of wrap around you. We're all talking about being chilly in the world today. It's so cold in so many yeah. places, but I always felt that reading was such a warm experience that helped us feel at home in the world. Yeah. 
So usual, most bios, if anyone looks up your bio, most bios about you start with the phrase that Naomi's a Palestinian American. A Palestinian American. Um, your father's Palestinian. Um, and I'm curious about what your relationship was like with him as a kid. He was a journalist. Uh, he cared a lot about the written word. Um, how early on into your childhood did you feel comfortable with the idea that, oh, I'm a writer. I, oh. This is who I am. Right. Um, well, I adored my father. He was such a, uh, just such a jovial, convivial, um, curious person. He would have loved this organization, by the way. What you what you talk about, active intellectual curiosity, that was him all the way. He was a, a heartwarming, funny dad, um, never fussy, never angry, just so loving to everybody. And people have uh, so many good memories of him that I'm I'm constantly being reminded of how much he meant to, to, to anyone who came in contact with him. I was, of course, intrigued by the fact that he was a journalist and there were always newspapers, many of them in our house and magazines and books. He was a big reader, both in Arabic and in English, and uh, always encouraged, you know, asking more questions. We need to know more stories. We need to find out that story. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, he would actually stop the car on the street to ask someone on the corner their story. And that sense of uh, camaraderie, closeness in the world was a lucky thing for me as, as a child. I just felt his magic from the very beginning. By the way, the picture on the left is 53. The one on the right is probably more like 1958 or, or 59. Yeah. And it was in one of those 25-cent booths that we used to have in <laughs> drugstores in the United States where you put yeah. a quarter and get a picture. But it's touching to me that he's pointing at me in that picture because I think he was that kind of person. He always made kids feel like their voice mattered. You know, what do you think about this? He would ask my friends and, uh, and that, that meant something big to me. Um, yeah. I did not grow up speaking Arabic, though, which is something I deeply regret and will always regret. Uh, yeah. he, he said later, I'm sorry, I was trying to perfect my English because at that point he was working in English as a journalist. And he said, I, I should have taught you Arabic. I, I don't know why I didn't. It was something he regretted, too. Yeah. So um, these both of these photos are taken in U.S. and Texas, right? No, these were both taken in St. Louis. Oh, that's where, right. That's right. Yeah, yeah Missouri. Uh -huh. We didn't um, come to Texas till till later. So let's talk about that that later. So in 1966, you moved to Palestine. Yes. Um, and the idea is your dad, it, it, I think if I have the story straight, your dad's mom is sick. Um, and, and maybe I'm wrong. Well, but there's some reason why you moved back. What is that reason? Well, when my parents married, I think they had an understanding that they wanted to live in both their worlds. And my father was always hoping to go back to Palestine for good, like to stay. He really wanted to live in Palestine. He would have been very happy to stay there longer. But um, when we went in 66, I think he thought it was going to be a peaceful time. Things were all yeah. going to be getting better. So we lived actually 
just south of Ramallah, between Jerusalem and Ramallah. But I remember this this roundabout very clearly and going to school in first in Ramallah, then in, I went in the old city of Jerusalem and my brother stayed going to school in Ramallah. We were kind of in and out all the time. Now, my grandmother wasn't sick yet, but in years to come, when we would be going back and forth to Palestine so many times, um, and she lived to be 106. Uh, wow. <laughs> many, many times illness was involved. Um, we figured out at some point that if the report came that she was feeling very ill, she knew that we might get on an airplane and come. Oh. So uh, we all did that a lot. There was a lot of going back and forth. <laughs> yeah. Very, very smart. I'm curious what the what your relationship was like with Palestine before moving there as a kid. And what was sort of the reattachment and maybe detachment feel like? And what did you think home was as a kid? Well, you know, that is a really interesting question because I think my father gave us so much to look at in our minds through his stories. He told us stories every night before bed that were always based in Palestine. I don't think he ever told a story based in St. Louis or mm. anywhere else he'd ever been. So I had this whole, like a whole catalog of images in my mind of, of what Palestine was like. And then you know, when we actually went to live there, many of them were pretty accurate because he was a great storyteller. And a lot of them were far-fetched and funny and more from an older world than what was existing even in the 60s. Uh, but my father was also a person always trying to feel at home wherever he was. So there was a sense of, um, well, this doesn't look like what I remember. This doesn't taste like what I remember but this is our home. And he was somebody who wanted to revel in, you know, making a home wherever he went. I used to feel, you know, in all my many years as a traveling poet, which would still be going on if we didn't have COVID in the world, yeah. um, that, that you could really make a home like in a hotel room in about an hour. You could, you know, set up your space and go out and take a walk and get a little food and come look out the window and write things down. And, you know, all these really basic essential activities that could make you feel suddenly at home in Seattle or Oman or wherever you found yeah. yourself at the moment. And my father probably transmitted that, you know, that we are portable human beings. We um, we should get to know many places in our lives if we're lucky. But for him, Palestine remained the home that yeah. he uh, always felt closest to in his spirit. That 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 sort of uh, philosophy requires like a deep interior life, right? This yeah. idea that that home is actually inside of me and all I need is a little, you know, a, a different throw blanket, a, a nice a, a nice meal, yeah. Um, a hot shower and all of a sudden I've like my bearings have uh, have been readjusted and I've, I've found home because we're, home is sort of on the go you being right. this, this wandering poet so I'm curious as a kid were you what was your relationship with literature as a kid was it something that you disappeared into um, and what was your what were you like as a kid were you this quiet quiet kid and I'm going to pull up two of these books that you've mentioned as being some of your favorite books as a kid, just as we talk about this uh, conversation. Yes. Uh, well, I was an obsessive reader, and these two books still exist in my little house. They're upstairs in the children's library area. 
And uh, they were two of my favorite books. Margaret Wise Brown was, uh, was a, an author that millions of kids worldwide have come to love, but this was not her best known book, but it was a book that was interesting to me because it, it focused on details in the world, which is sort of the specialty of poets, like an apple or a butterfly or a glass of water. And, and it said what was important about them. And I used to argue in my mind with this book mm -hmm. and say, no, I think all these things are important, not just that one thing is the most important. And so for me, it was an important book in a different way. Way because I had a relationship with it. I felt I was in conversation with Margaret somehow when I would look at this book. And Favorite Poems, Old and New, which is a very thick book. And I think last I looked, it was still in print too. It's an incredible book. It's been in print like 75 years now. Um, this book that was edited by Helen Ferris, who was so modest, she didn't even put her name on the cover. This book just shared so many different voices that it was fascinating to me because I saw all these different styles of poetry and uh, most of the poets were from English speaking countries. So I wondered about that. I mean, there were a few like Rabindranath Tagore from yeah. Bengal, but uh, most of the poets were, you know, US, England, UK. Is Helen Ferris an Arab? That sounds like such an Arab name. It does sound like an Arab name and you know, I've looked her up before. She was the president of the Junior Library Guild at one time, but I don't know. What a great question. Now I'm going to go search that out. Mikey, yeah. I bet you'll figure it out before I do, but that is a good point. She could have been an Arab, but yeah. these books, they they expanded my, my view, my horizon. And yeah. so once I found out about library cards and my school library, I felt like I was rich very rich because to me books were what made people rich and so I was going to the library every day at school every Saturday in the community and uh, it was the center of my world and yeah I've always been an obsessive reader okay so, so yeah yeah I want to talk a, a little bit about your your poems but before I do I, I was mentioning that I don't like asking people to do readings so we have the luxury of having a video, an animated video done by the On Being Project, which if you don't know the On Being Project, please uh, become familiar with them. They're incredible. Um, and there's this animated version of Kindness, which is one of my favorite poems of yours. Uh, I imagine many people on this call also love this poem. So I'm going to play it now um, and then we'll talk about it. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows 
and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Beautiful. As a as a musician and songwriter, how does it feel to have music set? As, like, how does it feel to have your poem scored? I've always loved it. I mean, if anyone wants to take the time to do it, feel free <laughs> to do it. I love it. All different styles of um, music can fit with the same poem. It's it's been yeah. a, a beautiful thing to witness. Yeah. And I, I think that's happened a lot more in recent years than maybe when I was growing up. So it's a pleasure to get to participate in, in experiencing other people's poems with music too. Yeah. What is your relationship with your work once it goes out there? Because the idea that somebody scores it means that they have to filter the emotions and the sort of meaning through their yeah. understanding. Do you kind of, do you feel like you own your work? You own, yeah. you have a monopoly on what they mean once they're done? Oh no, I feel like I, I feel like it goes on and has its own life. I feel like work travels out and it has its own life. And and many times its life will be better than what you possibly could have dreamed for it. And it'll make more friends in different ways than you ever could have imagined. So no, I don't feel I don't feel I own anything. I feel everything just travels out into the world. And if it finds friends, I'm very grateful for that. So this um, is gonna this is gonna ask, this is gonna seem like a strange question, but do you ever not like your work later as it transforms? Do you, I mean, if, I mean, if they are truly free and they're not uh, tethered to you, um, in theory, they could become different people that you don't quite like. As you become a different person, do you ever dislike poems that you've written and say, I really don't like this person? No, Mikey, I never have. No one's ever asked me that question either. And you are so creative yourself that... I really appreciate not only the homework you did to put our conversation together today, but um, but asking such an interesting question. I, I just had occasion in the month of December to make five audiobooks back to back, reading my Jeez. own poems. And um, it, it was astonishing to me to read some of those older poems because I felt like, wow, I was really kind of seeing into the future when I wrote that. I didn't even know things that would happen. And now this, <laughs> I have a connection to this poem that's different and bigger yeah. than what I was thinking when I wrote it. Or when I wrote it, I was only imagining it, but now I know it's really true. Just like in the kindness poem, I think the size of the cloth, how that has come to mean something different um, during the pandemic the worldwide global pandemic, this cloth that has the threads that have been connecting us all worldwide. Nobody, nobody owns it. Nobody wants to own it. We just want to solve it. And, um, but no, I, I didn't feel like I disliked any of the poems as I read them. Some of them seemed curious to me, like odd. And I was surprised to encounter them again, but, um, but it was a comforting thing to do. It was sort of yeah. like, that thing you used to hear of your life passing before your eyes, I, I got a little anxious. I thought, I hope this doesn't mean I'm, you know, passing. Yeah. But, um, 
but it was it was touching to read that many poems out loud just into a microphone in a room by yourself. Okay, let's open it up. The first question comes from Marianne. Marianne, if you want to unmute yourself, go for it. Hello there from hey. Seattle. How are you? Great. Hi, Marianne. I'm Hi. so happy to hear your beautiful voice. It's great to see you, dear. I miss seeing you. Um, I, I can't even imagine this because you're such a Pied Piper of kindness and compassion in your work. But have you ever been heckled? Yes, I have. And, um, you know, I try to remember my dad who, if heckled, he would say something like, my friend, um, I think you need a little more information or I have a lot of questions I'd like to ask you. Um, he would say something that would kind of turn the perspective. So, you know, like I'm not trying to beat you in an argument. Um, I had a funny experience once. I think I was in Ohio and someone who was standing in a doorway at the back of, a, of an audience at a, at a college um, started shouting out and heckling me in some way. I couldn't even understand what he was saying. And, um, and, and the crazy thing that happened was was an artist, a musician that I know from San Antonio, Texas, where I live. He lives right down the street. He actually got up and jumped on this guy and kind of pushed and took him out, out of the room. And I, I said afterwards, George, where did you come from? What are you doing in Ohio? And he said, well, like you, I travel for my work. And I was so surprised that this happened and so grateful. And I was laughing, thinking, you know, that's the last person I would dream of being defended by in another state. But, you know, I don't even know. There has been other heckling, but I never hold it to me. You know, some somebody said to me a couple of years ago, how do you feel when you read mean comments on the Internet about you or your work? And I said, that's an easy question to answer. I never read comments. I don't read positive or negative comments. So I don't know what anyone says. I don't really think that's what we should do. I think it would make people yeah. too self-conscious. So I just would try to find some way to ease the awkwardness, whatever it might be. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Thanks, Marianne. That's a great question. Um, and, yeah, and Marianne, by the way, is a great Arab American artist whom I love. Absolutely. <laughs> Look up her work. Thank you, dear. I'll talk oh, to you. And this soon. is a funny thing that we're looking down at here. It says that my son's name is Madison White Cloud. Actually, it's Madison Cloud Feather. I don't think I would have put white in somebody's name. <laughs> oh, interesting. So this is wrong. I apologize. No, that's okay. Um, okay, so let's um, have Mediam, you're up next. Do you want to unmute yourself and ask your question? Hi, Mediam. I, uh, uh, I hope you're doing great. Uh, it was a pleasure listening to you. My question is, uh, I'm from Lahore, Pakistan. Uh, what is the least inspiring thing that happened that you put in your poem? Yeah, the least inspiring thing. How do you least... convert those things into your poetic lens? Ah, interesting. Least inspiring. Well, you know, I think sometimes fear is not too inspiring because we get we get caught, we get stuck in fear or doubt sometimes. I mean, I think doubt is interesting, but fear where we're like afraid to do something. Um, and sometimes we do have to write to, to move through that. And by the way, I love your city, Lahore, Pakistan. I have worked there uh, in my life. Wow. I was very moved to be there, Kishvar Nahid. 
was one of my friends there and uh, I really respected her work there. And uh, my mother's name, by the way, was Miriam. So Mariam is a beautiful name to me. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for your uh, question. And that is such an interesting question. Thanks, Mariam. Sada wants me to read her question. Um, could you share more about your writing process? Do you do it in one sitting or do you go back and edit and do rewrites? And how does the impact, how does that impact the authenticity of the emotion in what you're writing and the rawness? Sure, that's a great question. Yeah, I still like to write by hand in notebooks like pen or pencil. Um, I like I like it to be messy sometimes. I like to write up the page, you know, stick words in. I, I really like that physical experience of writing. And yes, definitely I go back to it many times. And I don't think that we dilute the experience, the emotion of a piece of writing or a piece of art or music, whatever you're creating, by going back to it. We're just bringing another perspective to it, another self. I mean, it's not like at the moment you're writing, you're a true person, and then tomorrow you're going to be a false person. No, you'll just be a true person on another day, coming back with your new experience, and you're, you know, maybe a little bit more distance to apply to that work. Um, like today, I'm writing down some things from the past week that I just hadn't had a chance to write down some comments my grandson made when we were on a walk, some funny things. Um, some things, some thoughts I had about my mom that may grow into mom poems, but I wasn't really, you know, doing a lot with them. I was just recording a lot of details. But when I go back and start trying to compose something, um, then I will be more getting into more of an editing process, trying to build a poem, bring in little bits and pieces, create a scene, bring in voices. And then sure, I'll go back and edit it many times. I love revision. Always remember, revision means new vision, revision. So it's not like you're tampering with your pure work. It's like you're just working on your work. Um, and I see a question up there about what advice can you give novice writers? Uh, my mentor, William Stafford, used to say, for writers, there are three basic ways, morning, noon, and night. Like, <laughs> Like, write a lot, write at different times of the day. And also, I had a, a, a class in college where our, our teacher was a playwright. It was a class on creating in many different genres. And um, he always said, try to be kind to yourself. Don't be a difficult censor for yourself, saying, no, you shouldn't be saying that. No, that's probably no good. Be kind to yourself. Welcome your own perception as it comes to you. Because if you don't, who will? That's true. Uh, Naomi, I could listen to you all day. Um, this is so, 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 so sweet of you to do this and share your, your nuggets of wisdom and joy um, with us. It's, real, it's a real pleasure. Mikey, thank you for your time. It's such an honor to be with you. You're my favorite interviewer ever. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank um, you. This the talk will go up on our podcast tomorrow and on our YouTube page. If you haven't already subscribed, subscribe, please do so. Share them with your friends. They'll like it. They'll like you. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, tomorrow we have another event. Uh, oh no, I take it back. Uh, Monday we have an event, um, which is one of our quarter tone series, and it's with the great Adnan Gibran. It should be a lot of fun. So be well. Enjoy your weekend. I hope you are warm and safe. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you.
Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to watch the full uncut version, go to youtube.com slash afikra. There you can see the full video versions of these podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to afikra.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks. Thanks.